Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. And today I want to talk about something that's come up, a real contract trend on uh, an article that was published in Atlantic uh, recently about Donald Trump. As usual with the Atlantic, it was a hit piece on Donald Trump, but the article was most notable because it had all sorts of sources for the story, which uh, the author, uh, Goldberg, who's the editor, managing editor or editor of um, Atlantic Journalist declined to disclose their, their identities. Um, so I want to explore whether this is good journalism, bad journalism, and whether things have changed since I was, took a journalism class in college uh, 50 years ago. And with me to dig into this is uh, Mark, Ta two veteran journalists, Mark Tapscott and uh, uh, Brian McNichol, both have, have over four, four decades experience in journalism. Uh, most currently, Mark is, uh, covers Congress for the Epic Times, and Brian is, is, has been on some other shows with me, and he is an independent journalist, and both of them have been writing and, and thinking about journalistic ethics for years. Uh, Brian, would you frame this, uh, this issue for me? For so us? The, the Atlantic wrote a story. It's based on uh, four anonymous sources that says, uh, Trump called uh, the soldiers uh, losers and cowards, uh, and it's there was a meeting of heads of state at one of the G7 meetings in Europe, and they were going to have a, a a side trip to a World War One cemetery or battlefield, and our security determined that Trump could do it. it's a two lane road in and out of there, and if they had to get him out, that you know you could stop traffic and you could stop him from being able to get out. And we, you know, we don't take those kind of risks with our president, whoever is president. So the story says that, you know, we didn't go because Trump didn't want to go and he thought these people were losers for dying in this battle. So there are four uh, anonymous sources supposedly behind the Atlantic story. Um, there are 21 people now on the record saying that it is not true, including eight who were uh, eyewitnesses to the events that day. Um, and most of the other witnesses say that not only did Trump not say this that day, he doesn't, he's never said anything that they know of disparaging the military. Uh, among the people who support Trump's account of it are a top aide to John Kelly, who uh, was run off as chief of staff of the White House, and uh, John Bolton, who was the national security director, who has left the White House on bad terms and written an anti-Trump book. So, you know, people who are not Trump's friends support him on this, on the record. And uh, Goldberg, you know, has his four off the record or anonymous sources. And then you have the uh, rather strange sideshow of this, of other uh, media outlets, conf quote, confirming uh, the, with anonymous sources that Goldberg's article, okay? So, you know, I can call you and say, you know, <laughs> gossip, 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 and you print it. Then I call all those other people, gossip, 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 and that's considered confirming the story. There's so, still no one on the record who confirms the story. So, but didn't, didn't Bolton say something like, look, I was there, and uh, if that had happened, it certainly would have been in my book first. <laughs> right, I'd have written a chapter. He said, I'd have written a chapter on that. So, Mark, what's your take on this? Uh, the Goldberg story is especially embarrassing to me as uh, an editor, frankly, uh, because Goldberg himself is the editor of The Atlantic, and he knows better. 
This is Jeffrey Goldberg. Jeffrey Goldberg, not, right. It's not um, Jonah Goldberg at, at AEI. This is Jeffrey Goldberg. Yeah, um, who uh, has a very different outlook on politics and government than uh, Jonah does. Um, but it's, it's embarrassing because it's, it's a classic illustration, at least in my view, of how to do bad journalism that destroys the credibility of journalists. Um, and, you know, I wish we had some kind of, of um, informal way of, of censuring, if you will, uh, journalists who do this kind of thing because, you know, our credibility is in the dumps. It has been for some time. And this is the kind of story that just pushes it deeper and deeper. Yeah, the, the people say that they, you know, the polling is, you know, only about 20% of the people trust what Trump says about the coronavirus. Yeah. And only about 12% trust what the media says. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can't even get trusted on what should be a pretty basic newspaper. Yeah, and used car salesmen are more trusted than most of them. That's right. I hate to say and I would say they've earned it, you know, to me that, you know, that this is, this is earned distrust as, you know, you start ticking off the, the hoaxes, right? Russia hoax, Ukraine hoax, just in the last few weeks, you know, post office hoax, uh, you know, Trump played down the pandemic hoax, right? You know, I mean, this it's just one after the other and they're, you know, you wait 48 hours and they're all thoroughly debunked. So, so the so the core issue though is if if it's if it's hostile to Trump, and if you got to name names, the reader can say to themselves, "Well, look, this this person we know is, uh, you know, married to uh, somebody in the was, who's George Conway. We know he's the Lincoln Project. We know George hates Trump, so therefore we're going to recognize he's got an agenda. Whereas if you're naming somebody who maybe less obviously anti-Trump, that has some credibility, at least that they're supposed to be neutral. And so, but you, unless you name the names, you can't, uh, you can't know who it is that's uh, saying what. But I've been interviewed a lot by, for various things over the years, and there's a whole level of, of attribution. Mark, could you explain how, how the sourcing rules work? You know, I've gotten into conversations with journalists and I say, is this off the record or is this background or, for attribution or whatever, right. how does how does the how, what are the, what are the rules? Well, <clears throat> number one, if it's on the record, that means I'm going to quote it if it uh, you know advances the story. If it's on background, that means you and I have had a conversation about various aspects of whatever it is I'm reporting on, and uh, I may or I may not use quotes that you have given me, but I won't attribute them to you. Uh, I will try to tell my readers as much as I can about you so that they can be reassured um, that you know what you're talking about, even though they don't know your name. Uh, and then, of course, off the record means I can know it. I can keep it in mind as I talk to other people, but I can't quote it directly in my story. And that's, those are pretty straightforward rules when you think about them. Um, and when you use an anonymous source, you are automatically telling the reader, there's something here that you need to be very wary of, because if the journalist doesn't then tell the reader as much as they can about the anonymous source, you're basically saying, hey, trust me. Right. That, that's the big issue with this, this particular story 
is that, you know, you have 21 people saying it's not true. You have eight who were there and who were in on the decision making. Sarah Sanders, uh, uh, Bolton, others who you're actually in on saying, oh, we can't do this, right? So you, you, unless they tell us who this is, I mean, I can't imagine who has inside information that could make those eight people either all lying, and it's unlikely Bolton is lying to help Trump, right? Uh, or, uh, or, or incorrect. Uh, we misunderstood the events. This guy was closer to the events, you know. But they won't tell you who it is, you know. And we're getting we're getting to the point where it's almost impossible that there's anyone who knew more about it this than those twenty one people. Yeah, and and the the amazing thing about this to me as as an editor. Um, 21 people say on the record, my name is Mark and I'm telling you, I was in the room and Trump did not say that. Goldberg, it was his obligation as a journalist and to his readers to make the calls to as many people as he possibly could in addition to the anonymous sources because of the great possibility that there might be somebody who contradicts what the anonymous source is telling him. And if he does come up with somebody like that, he has an obligation to share it with his readers because, you know, here's what this anonymous source, whose name I can't tell you says, but on the other hand, we also talked to these folks and they on the record said X. Then, you, then you've given the reader enough information that they can make their own decision about Who's, uh, who's telling you the straight story. Otherwise, it's, it's a narrative, uh, another word for which is propaganda. I think most people understand this. I mean, as I, as I read through the Atlantic piece, and you, it's, it's obviously a hit piece, and he attributes things to entities or people like a four-star general familiar with the matter said, or with you know, senior staff who've been uh, working with the president said, uh, you know, unless you're, unless you're really paying attention and you're a journalist and you know the rules, you may not really, he did this in a very clever way so that you felt like you're one degree of separation away from uh, the actual name. Right. You know, you, Mark raised a good point. You know, why didn't Jeffrey Goldberg call Bolton, right? But Bolton quite likely, you know, would have set him straight and avoided some embarrassment Right. And, you know, Bolton, you know, if Bolton knew of Trump saying these things, he would have held back. Right. He would have volunteered that information willingly. Did you look at like who was never called or contacted all the people who were there? You know, they have, you know, email uh, records of them going back and forth talking about how bad the weather was and how we have to pull this. And the president really wants to do it, but he can't. And it's like, why did we find that out after this came out? We well, you know that raises another. That's got to come out. That raises a, a, another issue, which I guess I'd call selective sourcing. So he 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 had in mind what he wanted to write, and he only called the people who would tell him what he wanted to hear. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. I mean, that's that seems never, like that that's almost the bigger crime. Well, it's it's if you're doing narrative rather than reporting. Why, that's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to go find the people and the sources that support the narrative that you're trying to build. Um, Bill, you and I are old enough to remember the idea of the October surprise from the Reagan campaign, the Reagan days. Sure. 
what's happened in the last 20 years is it's instead of one of the campaigns springing in October surprise, it's become the journalist springing these quote unquote October surprises. And it's gotten to the point that, that there have been so many of these stories, some of which probably were mostly accurate, most of which, who knows, but it's gotten to the point now that, that there's two things that stand out with Goldberg. There's an election coming up in a couple of weeks, and it's an anonymous sources, and it trashes Trump. So that's three strikes right there. Perfect. If you're the if you if you're the Atlantic, um, yeah, and, and to your question, Bill, do people understand this? No, no. no. you know, no. people. I have like had some Twitter discussions with people in the last since this came out, and and you know, people haul up Watergate. They're like, "You dummy! Don't you realize Watergate was all wholly done with anonymous sources?" Not true. You have to explain to them. No, none of the information from Deep Throat made it into the paper. Deep Throat was never quoted. We never said according to Deep Throat, right? They took what he said, and it's like Mark was talking about the process of this, and they went and, you know, got people to corroborate it, found documents that supported it. Then you're not supporting, you're not reporting on what Deep Throat said. You're reporting on these other things. Well, let's talk about that. That's a a good one because, you know, it's an investigation that brought down the President of the United States. Do you think that uh, if Mark, uh, what was his name? He was with the FBI, Mark. Mark Felt. Uh, Mark Felt. Mark Felt. If, 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 if Woodward Bernstein had, been, had revealed the name Mark Felt, would it have resonated the way it did? My guess is it would not, but I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. I think that, uh, I assume you mean if, Rather than maintaining the anonymity of felt, they had. At some yeah, let, let's 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 pretend we're writing it like this. Carl, Woodward Bernstein's the by, Woodward Bernstein byline, Washington Post, Tuesday, blah blah blah. Um, in conversations recently with disgruntled, passed over FBI employee Mark Felt, uh, yeah, Richard Nixon um, is doing this, that, and the other. Then you're going to say, wait a second, Mark Felt here has got a real ax to grind with the administration and with Nixon. And Bill, that's exactly what I'm talking about, about the, the editors, the reporters' obligations to tell the readers as much as possible about the source, because the source may indeed have, you know, personal animus, there may be uh, reasons why he is he or she is trying to trash an opponent, uh, an internal opponent in a policy matter, or maybe for a promotion. There's all kinds of things that can that can color the credibility that you can attach to a to a reader. I I kind of disagree with you, Brian. In one sense, I think a lot of readers have not not a systematic understanding of these things. But, you know, you read a story like Goldberg and it stinks, you know, you don't have to be a journalist to know, well, this, this, this is really thin stuff. This is gruel, you know. I think a lot of people realize that, a lot of readers. That's one of the reasons why credibility of journalism is going down. That's right. So in, the, in terms of the, uh, the landscape of the geography of a news page or a newspaper or a magazine, there used to be a hard line between news reporting and op-ed or columns, rather. Sure. And I got into 
when I was running my public company, I got into a, a famous battle with a short seller. We fought for eight or nine years and he was very good at working the financial press. And so I had, I learned a lot about how that world works. But there was one instance where he got to a columnist at the Times who wrote a hit piece. It was absolutely factually wrong. I mean, we went through it and there wasn't anything in it that could be corroborated, verified, whatever. In fact, it was everything just the opposite. So I had my lawyer write write a, write a refutation of it, sent it to the Times, and Ramsbundin came back and said, well, uh, that may well be the case, but this was a column. It was the writer's opinion. Oh, yeah. And therefore, we don't need to follow the same rules of sourcing and, and adherence to the facts that uh, we would in the news story. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that, that was, uh, I don't know, I guess that was 12, 15 years ago. How, how, is that still the case? What, what are the, oh, what, absolutely. And, and it's, I just did a story on, on some related issues, uh, on this. Um, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas recently, uh, opined in a dissent that it was time to, for the court to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan which of course is the classic libel case. Um, and his point was uh, precisely that, you know, if you can't prove um, actual malice and knowledge that what was printed was not correct or had substantial reason to think that it might not be correct, you have no hope, Bill Walton, of persuading the uh, publication to do a correction. Because as they can say, hey, you know, we did everything we could. It's an opinion piece, and therefore we're entitled to publish opinion as we like. You have to prove that, well, it may be opinion, but you have to be able to prove that he also knew that, hey, this may not be true, but I don't like Bill Walton, so I'm going to publish this. That's very hard to prove. It's, it's all but impossible to prove. Yeah, that's what needs to be uh, to be changed. What were the facts of the New York Times versus Sullivan? I'm not familiar with that. What was the? It was 1964. It was. Yeah. It, it's a classic decision because um, it was generated by um, uh, a Southern, I believe, in Georgia or Kentucky. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's Georgia. Yeah, uh, local officials who were part of the uh, massive resistance to the civil civil rights movement. Um, and they sued the New York Times for um, uh, a, a story that had been published that this local official didn't like. Um, and out of all of that litigation came the decision that said, well, you've, you know, to this Southern official who was upset, if you can't prove the actual malice on their part, you don't have, you don't have a, uh, you don't have a case. Um, Supreme Court justices were very concerned about protecting um, the independence of the news media at the time. Um, they went too far. Well, it seems like the boundary lines or the divisions between an, an opinion piece and the news, though, have really, they really blurred um, almost to the point of not being able to tell the difference. I mean, you look at, you look at the most egregious example, which would be the Washington Post, which you know, hates Donald Trump and will do everything it can to uh, remove Donald Trump from office. You read their headlines, you read their, their, their stories on page one. Um, an awful lot of it reads like opinion to me. 
There's a column on the front of the sports page of the Washington Post uh, today criticizing Trump. It's every section of the paper. An opinion column on the sports page. Right. Okay. NFL starts tonight. It has to do with the NFL. Well, that's another show we need to do, the politicization of sports. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. What, Mark, what do you think? Is it, am I being uh, partisan? I mean, am I, am I wrong? Is it uh, the, the Post is really following all the traditional rules of journalism and it's just because of the way they write it? Or is it uh, something deeper? No, it's something a lot deeper. And, and my, my first managing editor was Wes Pruden at the Washington Times. Oh, he's terrific. Yeah, he is Plus. terrific. And the first thing that Wes taught me, and I was, I was at the beginning of my journalism career. This is 1985, after I'd been in the Reagan administration. Um, he said, get it first, but first get it right. Because if it ain't right, it doesn't matter who got it first, except for the fact that you're the one that blew it, you know? Mm. And, you know, it doesn't make any difference whether it's an opinion piece or a news piece. There has to be a factual basis for what is published. Otherwise, you're asking for trouble. Right. And I don't think that saying something is an opinion piece removes much of at all of your obligation to get the facts right. No, I don't, I don't either. You know, you can say that guy's a, he's a dummy, right? Which you can't, you shouldn't say in a news story, you know, but you want to say this guy's dumb because he did this. That's your judgment. That's your opinion. You're free to do that. Right. You don't have to prove he's dumb. Yeah. Right. But you have to prove he made dumb decisions that, you know, but I mean, your obligation to get the facts of those stories, right. Doesn't really change. Yeah. The Epoch Times has has a rule in the newsroom that I really respect, and that's the, that the Epoch Times does not publish quotes for people that are personal attacks or ad hominem. Um, and that <laughs> that that uh, should be obvious, but unfortunately, it's not. And and what you're talking about, Bill, with the Washington Post and that headline is perfect illustration. Well, the, the Jeffrey Goldberg has his defenders and there was a piece written by Tom Jones. Uh, I guess he was with Pointer who jumps right in to say, well, you know, you can't, you can't name names because uh, these sources are, are afraid of retribution and they're acting like whistleblowers and that, uh, you know, the power of, of Trump is such that if their names are out, there'll, there'll be all sorts of hell to pay. And so, therefore, they're justified in, in staying, uh, staying behind, the, behind the curtain. What do you think? Well, what is the cost of that? So, if you don't, you know, what has happened to Goldberg over this as a result of not releasing his sources? You have 21 people against you who are there, do know, and do understand. And, you know, there's a question of whether he should be believed, right? And now you, they, there's been a, two or three pieces out there looking back at the long history Right. Uh, Goldberg and, you know, these type of stories blowing up on him and turning out not to be correct. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the idea that every person who comes to a journalist with, with something to say about somebody else, fears of retribution is, is nonsense. 
I, I've spent 30 years talking to real whistleblowers uh, in government. And, and let me tell you, I, after about the, <laughs> the 50th interview with one who comes to you, you begin to pick up a, a sense of, there's a lot of these guys that everything they say may be true, but so what, you know? From their perspective, it's the most important thing in the world, but from a news perspective, it's not. There's others, they come to you and it's pretty clear, they are really hacked off at somebody and they're gonna try to use the media to uh, get back at them. And then there's the few that have a legitimate news story that um, they well may fear justifiably um, some form of retribution. Those, that's a very tiny segment of all of the quote unquote whistleblowers. Yeah, what is meant by retribution? Angry emails, you know, sorry, you're yeah. gonna pitch dirt, then some people are gonna write back and say, you know, you're a jerk and you're wrong. And that's, that's the, you know, that's 2020 right there. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I'm, uh, I, I, we also have the, I guess, with the Society for, um, with SPJ, you've got an ethics Special committee. Yeah. And uh, it, it's come down pretty hard on you ought to be naming names. Is, is how, much, how much power does this uh, Society of Professional Journalists have in today's uh, media landscape? Go for yeah. it, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Not all that much anymore. I think you answered right. You answered my question. <laughs> so, is it, let's we got a couple minutes prognosis. Where do we go from here? I mean, I it it, it seems to me this would just be a fact of modern, you know, modern life that you've got partisan journalists and they're going to write it and they're going to report it and not source it and let the chips fall where they may because I think they figure that the damage they wanted to do to Trump uh, was accomplished and in a way they brought the story even more to the front because of the big controversy over sourcing. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, after Trump wins, because, you know, the whole purpose of all this since 2016 has been to stop him from winning again. And if he wins, it's over. And I say there's, you know, there's a month or so of frustration about that, but then there's going to be some looking past it because whatever the post writes about him going forward won't be, you know, it won't get him thrown out. It won't, you know, they're not going to be able to impeach him and they're not going to be able to uh, beat him in an election. So, you know, you may get some people, some cooler heads coming in and saying, Hey, wait a minute, quite a lot has been accomplished here. Who are the guardian angels here? I mean, I used to, uh, one of the things that strikes me that I felt when I was running my public company is that so many of our institutions have lost, uh, lost their luster, their reputation. Used to be you could write a letter, the board of directors of the company and, and its wisdom has decided X, Y, Z, or the public accountants have, have pronounced on this or, you know, various, various authoritative and moral sources most of those seem to have been discredited over the last two, three decades. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know quite who the grownups are here who are supposed to, you know, lay down the rules and enforce the rules. I fear there, there really aren't any. I think that's a very valid thing to worry about because um, we, we mentioned the Society for Professional Journalists uh, 20, 25 years ago. Um, 
if you got an award from Society for Professional Journalists for one of your stories, um, that was something, yeah. because you knew other journalists would would recognize it as an indication of your I talent. I got one uh, uh, from Jack Anderson. Oh, really? I, so, no, it was pretty, that's one of those highlight days there. Absolutely, absolutely. But today, um, you know, there's so many faux journalism groups out there um, that, and, 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 and liberal ideas have so infected Society for Professional Journalists and all the rest of the journalism fraternity that, um, you know, the guardrails are just not there. Well, I often think of, it, of our side of thinking in terms of the process is the, is the point and having a fair process is the means you're trying to, uh, we want to bring about, you know, just, you know, liberty for all, equal, equal rights under the law. Whereas the other side seems to think the means are justified by the ends. Yes. And yeah. so if you're promoting the, the, the liberal agenda, any means justify that end. And I think we've lost a lot of our uh, institutions because of that corruption. Yeah, yeah. The narrative is the point. So if you use anonymous sources, but it advances the narrative, that's just fine. That's right. That sounds like a final word. <laughs> I'm going to. Unfortunately. <laughs> let's, uh, Mark Tapscott and Brian McNichol, let's, let's, let's plan to circle back on this topic or related topic in the next, next few months to, because uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot to talk about journalist wise when we get to the time after the November 3rd election, when even if Trump wins, I think the playbook is to follow Hillary's instruction is to yeah. no, no way in any form uh, um, concede, uh, concede defeat. Yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore. That's right. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, thank you. And uh, thanks thank for you. listening. To, thanks for listening to the Bill Walton Show. And uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcast, all the major podcast platforms. And uh, we also urge you to uh, take a look at our website and you can subscribe. There's a lot of interesting ancillary material, including web pages about, uh, about each of our guests. So, Brian, Mark, thanks. Thank See you, you soon. Talk soon. All right. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.